Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Verse Samuel chapter 21. We'll study verse 10 through chapter 22, verse 5. Let us read the word of God together. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to the servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen, that you may be brought, uh, that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam, and. When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became captain over them. And there were with him about four hundred men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Thus far the word of the Lord our God. May he give us blessing as we study it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've read this ancient history, the history of your church and of your faithfulness to your people, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that you remain the same, a God of promises and providence, a God of faithfulness, who makes promises and keeps them, and who conceals his holy and eternal will until the right time that it should be made manifest to his people. Lord, help us to know you as you are, that we would not be a people who would try to press you to be the God we would have you to be, but Lord, rather that we would submit to you in every season, Lord, that we would trust in you and your sovereign purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Crisis puts our beliefs to the test. And it is often used by the Lord to teach our hearts the things that at least our heads have supposedly already learned. And that is something what we see here in the experience of David as he flees before Saul and as he is really and sincerely concerned for his life. Now, if you're familiar at all with the testimony of 1 Samuel and the interaction of David and King Saul, this should seem a little strange. 
because we've already seen David succeed and be courageous and triumphant in the face of Saul's enemies. We've seen a shepherd boy take down an established giant of a soldier with nothing but a stone and a sling and the might of the God of heaven. Likewise, we've seen David be a a great and valiant soldier. We've seen him be in the midst of the household of Saul, leading armies successfully again and again and again. We have seen David uh, be set on a ridiculous bride price mission as he went in and out amongst the Philistines and provided circumcision free of charge to at least a third of their army. He's a mighty man. Moreover, he's a man that Saul has hated and has pursued to put him to death, even throwing spears at his head several times at very short range. Yet David, again and again, by the hand of God, has been sustained. So why is David fleeing? Why is he running? Of course, it's all under the providence of God. It's all under the sovereign hand of the Lord causing history to unfold according to the way in which He pleases. But nonetheless, it does seem that crisis has put the beliefs of David to the test. The things he has known, even the things he has experienced, are now coming to his heart. And isn't that the same for us? Isn't that very much the same for us? That we can believe right things, yet in the hard season, those right things are put to the test and pressed to our hearts And it's in those times that the Lord teaches us of his mercy, his character, and the wonderful truth of his revealed will. And so the three things I want us to see, or at least consider, uh, in the passage. First of them, providence and promises. The providence of God and the promises of God. Secondly, protection and princes. Protection and princes. And then thirdly, places and prominence. I worked hard for all of those P's, so we're going to try to work through those. Providence and promises, protection and princes, places and prominence. So in chapter 21, we've already seen David, and he's gone to the spiritual site at Nob, and he's been with the priest Ahimelech. And we've got this story of as he approaches, he's got just a few young men with him, and he's starving. Not only is he starving, he's without weapons, and he runs to the priest and he says, give me something to eat. The priest says, I don't have anything here except for the bread of presence. And you may recall that he then puts David to the test and he says, have you and your young men kept yourself pure? Have you kept yourself away from women very specifically? And David confirms it. He's then given the bread of presence and they eat. Uh, Likewise, David says, do you have any weapons here? And the priest very sensibly says, "Uh, no. There's only one thing, and it's the thing that you dropped off here, the sword of Goliath. And David says, please, give it to me. And the text tells us he strapped it on his side. This is a desperate David, and he feels the pressure of his circumstances. It's not lost on him that there is an angry king that has control of God's army, if you will, on earth, amongst the people of Israel, and he has set his face against David. And David has in himself become desperate, so much so that he runs. And where do we see him in chapter 21 running to? Well, to Achish, the king of Gath. 
And as we've studied this, you may think, oh, I've heard the the name of the city of Gath before. Where have I heard that? Who is it that's so famous to come from Gath? Well, there was a particular champion, a man named Goliath. And the circumstances that David feels in the providence of God are so heavy upon him that he runs from a wicked and enraged Saul who can't lay a finger on him straight on into the only other person in the region that seems to have a good reason to kill him. Into Gath, into the city of Goliath, into the heart of the Philistine stronghold. It's not just the family of Goliath or even a good reason that Achish would want to have him dead. But again, let me remind you of the bride price. It's highly unlikely that those men lined up and willingly gave to him a portion of their body for the purchase of the bride, Michael. He probably killed those men. He's something like public enemy number one to the Philistines. But in David's mind, the old adage that's put on page by someone quite a long way removed from the world of the Bible, the enemy of his enemy is his friend. That's how David considers it. And so he comes, and as he enters into Gath, he, at some point, the text doesn't tell us, he encounters the servants of Achish, the king. Now, if you go and you read commentators, they have all sorts of different ideas of how to interpret the situation. Some of them good, some of them poor, some of them think David writes ahead of time to Achish. There's no biblical evidence of that. Don't go there, in my opinion. You don't have to have the answer. There's also no sense in thinking that David goes to Achish first and he's trying to pave the way to bring the king of the land of Israel into his servitude in Gath. I don't think the text necessitates that. We want to be good Bible readers. We want to take it at face value so far as we can. We just simply understand that he flees from Saul and goes to Achish, verse 10, the king of Gath, and that these servants, the servants of Achish, When they see David, they recognize him. Whether they've seen him on the field of battle, I don't know, but nonetheless, they know this. And whenever they bring him in to Achish, at least David's somewhere where he can hear them, they say to Achish, is not this David, the king of the land? Isn't this the one that they sang about his magnificent power in war? Saul who struck down his thousands, but then... David, his tens of thousands. It is a crazy scene. It's like going from the mouth of the wolf into the mouth of the lion. It's it's wild. It makes almost no sense. But I think what you see here is representative of the heart of a person in crisis. David is running from sure death in his mind into sure death by any understanding of the social sphere. If if Saul's going to kill you and has good reason, then how much more do the Philistines have to put you to death, David? It's It's wild and And why is he there? Why is his mind spinning? Well, I think it's because the providence of God did not seem to match with God's promises. David's looking around him and he says, you know, I know that God has promised me to be a king. I know that I'm called to wear a crown, but right now I think I should wear hoods and veils. I'm called to have a home and a palace in the midst of people that I'm to rule, yet here I am 
under the stars, in the elements, running in danger. I'm supposed to command a legion of soldiers and an army. And here I am running from that exact army. Lord, your promises don't match your providence. How can this be? And the crisis takes the things he believes and puts it to test regarding his heart. People in those circumstances, even Christians, likewise struggle. And I want to give you a phrase this this evening. I hope it sticks with you. It is terribly dangerous to interpret providence in real time. To take the things that are happening to you and then to try to understand in real time as they're happening, as you're experiencing them, the hard things that cause you grief, as you're experiencing that, well, this must be why God did blank this or that to me in my life. It's dangerous. Almost never do we interpret the providence of God in real time, in a right way. Instead, often we go with whatever appeals to the flesh. The providences of God should be interpreted according to the will of God, but almost always in past tense, always looking back to see the delivering hand of God. That is the right way so that we then have a thankful heart. That's the safe way, but that's not where David is. And so where is he? Well, he's been promised to be a king. Here he is volunteering himself to a foreign king, an enemy of Israel, to take refuge under the wing of a pagan man that doesn't know nor does he love the God of Israel. He's a blasphemer. And I just want to ask you, brothers and sisters, do you ever struggle with this? Struggling over the things that you believe that God intends for you? You're a Christian. You're redeemed. You're called uh, sons and daughters of the Most High God in Jesus Christ. You're also called holy, just as we read just a few moments ago, to be holy as your God is holy. Do you ever struggle knowing that this is who God has promised you to be, yet here you are and you're in the slow of despair? And you're struggling and you're failing and you're not finding uh, that coming kingdom in the palace uh, that the Lord has promised you. You're not finding uh, the victory. You're not finding uh, the abounding, conquering grace of the Lord. Instead, you're being just drugged through the mud of the hard season of living as a child of God. When providence doesn't match promises, how is the Christian, the child of God, to live in the midst of this? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It is certainly not the season where you take things into your own hands and you make decisions for yourself. Rather, the things that we know ought to be the things that we trust. The truth that is revealed in the Scriptures ought to then comfort our hearts and instruct us to wait on the Lord. It's always a dangerous thing to take control of the situation when we're simply called to wait on the providence and the directing of God. David didn't do that. And so he learns the lesson of protection and princes. So let's look at verse 11 again and go through uh, this portion of it. The servants are crying out to Achish. They're recounting the song, the song that stuck in the ear of Saul that caused him to hate and have rage against David giving David prominence. They recount this to King Achish. And there, verse 12, David took these words to heart. Again, he's hearing them. He's, he's near to them, near enough to hear what they're saying. And you can only imagine being David, can't you? 
You've already run. You're looking for some sort of stronghold, some place to hide. A king who's strong, who has an army, who's the enemy of your enemy. Yet, here they go. Here they're quoting. They're quoting that song, that stupid song that's brought you so much grief. If only those people had been quiet. If only they hadn't gloried David. If only they had glorified God. None of these issues would have been on David's agenda. He would not have felt them. It would not have been a thing for him. And so we hear, or we see David in verse 12 begin to engage with this a little bit. He hear the, hears the words. He takes him to heart. And what does he do? He fears Achish, the king of Gath. Why should David be afraid of any Gathite? Didn't he kill the greatest among them? With almost nothing. A little boy taking on Goliath. Why should he be afraid of Achish? Well, he is. It's because he's human. It's because he has sinful flesh. He feels his weakness. Verse 13, we see the action of David in the midst of this. He's misread the situation. He's put his hope and his trust in princes and in men. And what does he then do? Well, he does something completely undignified and entirely humiliating. We read he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. And he made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Completely, entirely undignified. Now, it could be a number of things that drive David to this. Where in the moment where he's seeing and hearing them say these things, he thinks, I would have to be insane to be here right now. This is the silliest thing I could have possibly done. That's one aspect to it. But I think there are some cultural underpinnings here that in the ancient world it was considered extremely poor form and possibly a thing to be judged by the divine to kill a mentally insane person. They were considered in some cultures uh, to be spiritually touched, to be uh, embodiments of deities and so on and so forth. And it's likely this that informs David. This is a strategy for survival. Right now as I walk in, they have every reason to kill me. But if I act crazy enough, they won't kill me. They'll expect I will kill me. There's something of this going in David's mind. He is terrified. He's overwhelmed. He's so afraid that he's willing to bear the humiliation. That he's willing to then disgrace himself in great fashion. But have you caught what they've said of David? I think that this is the only testimony, or at least the first testimony so far, other than that of the testimony of Samuel himself when he anoints David to be king, where other people look on David and other people call him a king. He's David, the king of the land. He's David, the king of the people of Israel. And this really shows you the circumstances that have caused Saul to be so enraged and caused David to be so afraid It's not only that the people of Israel adore David, but even their enemies consider David to be the great man in the midst of the people. He's the king. And so it's even more humiliating. It's even more hard of a lesson to learn that you do not seek your protection in princes. But it's an interesting thing. You know, David doesn't hold this in confidence. He doesn't hide it from us. It's there in the Scriptures. The Lord intends it for our good. And you might say to me, well, David's not the one writing for Samuel. But how about in Psalm 118.9? Put not your confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend, as the hymn so adequately quotes. Don't put your confidence in princes. 
Learn the lesson. Your confidence should not be in princes. Saul failed you. He didn't defend you. The armies didn't defend you. They cowered before Goliath of Gath. It's only God. Only God has delivered you, David. Take the thing you've experienced, the thing that you know, and let it influence your heart. This is something you need to know, David. And he says to the whole of the church, even the church today, you need to know this. Your God and your God alone in heaven is the only one, the only one who then can deliver you from the hands of wicked men. Some commentators look at this and they say, or they think, or they try to translate in such a way that David was driven insane by fear. That's not what the text says. It says that David took these words to heart, rationally thinking, Verse 13, so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane. A very adequate direct translation of what the Hebrew says to us. Moreover, if you're interested to find out about the inner life of David and was he losing his mind, uh, we do actually have two testimonies uh, of this exact occasion. Psalm 34, if you want to turn there, we'll read it pretty quickly or at least a good portion of it of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. That's this circumstance. This is what David writes of that occasion. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look on him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. What's going on in David's inner person? He's pleading with God as he's foaming at the mouth. Oh, Lord, deliver me. And in fear, he cries out to the Lord. You go on in verse six. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Well, that's one psalm that gives something of the account of the inner spiritual struggle of David. We'll look over Psalm 56. We have another. It's really wonderful. This stuck in David's mind. It was such an occasion that uh, as he writes these psalms, his superscription gives the account. It's humiliating. Why would you do this? Well, I think it's to give evidence of what the Lord was doing in him. Look at the superscription. Psalm 56. To the choir master, according to the dove on far off terebinths, probably a tune, a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long and attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, for their crime will they escape. In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. 
In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. David wasn't having an episode. Mm -mm. In fear and terror, he prayed, he writhed, he foamed as a madman, and he submitted himself to the hands of the holy God of heaven. And there have been plenty of conversations and writing and preaching where people try to go and ask the question. David is putting on a falsehood. He's, he's putting a, a ruse, a trick before uh, this man. And I don't want to go so deeply into uh, all of the different uh, portions of ethics, but simply to say uh, that most people consider this thing a, something permissible for the sa- salvation of one's life, something close to... Um, a, strat- a strategy to trick an enemy on the battlefield. Uh, but nonetheless, what's the thing I want to show you here? I think it's the lesson. Again, it's the lesson that David taught the church, Psalm 118, verse 9. Put not your confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. David would not have been here had he known that and held it in his heart beforehand. He would have been relying on God elsewhere. He wouldn't have been in the hard circumstance. And I think in the Bible, whenever you look at the patriarchs and at the great figures, on almost any occasion where the people of God go to foreign kings and entrust themselves to them for help, it's almost always a massive mistake. We see it in Abraham. We see it over and over and over and over again in the Bible. And the deep lesson of this is all, I think, simply this. Your God is sufficient for your stronghold. He is the one who alone can help you. He is the one to whom we should run for protection. Not men, not institutions, not kings. And then lastly in the text, as we go on to the next chapter, uh, we see places and prominence. Places and prominence. I had to think really hard for those two Ps. So David escapes, we're told, he departed, verse 1 of chapter 22, and there escaped to the cave of Adulam. And when his brothers and all his sister's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Okay, so the place. This is significant. It shouldn't be... Ignored, and I think it's pretty tough for us to understand without a little bit of uh, study. Where does David go? He goes to the cave of Adulam, and this uh, name is probably familiar enough to you, but do you know that it just simply means a hiding place? Um, one lexicon tries to describe the word or translate it, even though I don't know it's a direct translation, but something like a fortress. Uh, and you should imagine and let yourself kind of understand uh, that this is a great rock face. It's a protected place. It's sort of uh, hidden where you can be backed into the corner and you can know what's behind you. It's Well, it's a firm stone with, with no way that your uh, enemy could flank you. And then that's one aspect to the place. It's the provision of God. Yeah, it's a natural outcropping, but the Lord controls more than the natural. 
Uh, he, he controls all things, things man-made, things supernatural, everything belongs to the Lord. Uh, but this is in a place called the Valley of Rephaim. Rephaim. And you probably have heard that. You've heard it likely in reference to the encampments of the Philistines. It is strategic, okay? Rephaim, what does this mean? and How does this have relevance to uh, what we're studying? It's, it's this valley, and it's to the southwest of the city of Jerusalem. It's fairly close to Saul, really. But this is a, a, a valley uh, that there is some really heavy, significant cultural superstition. Rephaim speaks directly to one of two different translations and probably uh, this second one is what I would uh, encourage you to understand. Rephaim may speak to larger-than-life people, uh, giants, kind of like Goliath, okay? It could mean that. Uh, But it seems in the Hebrew culture this speaks actually to the wicked spirits. This is a dark valley, a valley of the shadow of death, likely the valley uh, that is uh, being thought of and referred to whenever you see the the Hebrew text refer to Sheol or the grave. This is a haunted place. It's a place where nobody's really going to come after David, at least most people would. It's a place where people would fear to set foot within. And it's there. It's a natural place. It's just somewhere David can go and hide. And he knows who his God is. He is the God of heaven, the Lord Most High. Who can touch me if God is for me? Who can be against me? To quote the Apostle Paul, I'm in a safe place, right? Well, that's probably why David ended up where he was. Not too many people were willing to go there except for, what do we read? Well, we read about his prominence, that people did go there, but it wasn't his enemies. No, rather, it seems to be every grumpy or part of his family or... All sorts of people of the people of Israel. That's what we read that his brothers and all of his father's house, they went down there to him. He said, it doesn't matter where David is, we're going to go to him. He's not alone. And then everyone in distress, this probably means civil distress. These are the grumpy people. These are the people that don't like Saul, that see how he has been treating David and see how Saul has done other foolish things. They don't like Saul. And so they rally to this other candidate, the next and chosen king. Then we have everybody who's in debt. Who are they in debt to? Well, it could be a number of people, but who is it going to be that comes and knocks on the door to collect the debt? Well, it's going to be Saul's guys and his governance. And these people have every good reason to go and then cling towards, well, David, this guy who possibly can do them some good. And everyone who was bitter in Saul, boy, he's got a happy company. He's in the valley of the shadow of death, and well, his company seems to be in the same place themselves. And we read that he became captain over them. And it almost makes me think of kind of, oh, the sort of militias that were in place, uh, the grumpy people who didn't care for the British abuses uh, of the colonized Americans uh, that drew to the cause. It makes me think of that. It makes me think of... Francis Marion, for the handful of you who might know who that is, the swamp fox who gathered a force in a place that was, well, a little bit rough for the posh men from the British Isles. So, there he is. He's a revolutionary of sorts. He's got his own group around him, and 
He's captain over them. And it's all in the provision of God. It's all the things the Lord has done. He didn't have to seek a man. He didn't do anything to really establish these places. It's natural. It's, it's a gift of the Lord that he's secure in this cave and in this valley. Likewise, it is the prominence the, that he has gained from the Lord that now he is surrounded by something of an army for his own defense. It's the Lord's doing. We go on and we read and... Just as soon as we've said, don't put your uh, hope for protection in princes. Well, here we're going to go and find that David did it yet again in any way. Verse 3, David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them there, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And so he did it anyway, but the Lord blessed him this time. And we don't read lots of different stories of David picking obvious and plain fights, at least at this point, uh, with the king of Moab. And so there it is. The Lord cares for his mother and his father. We see David upholding the law, the honoring of his mother and his father. But all of this still under the hand of the Lord. And you may say to me, but pastor, couldn't God have turned the heart of Achish? Of course he could. Of course he could. Couldn't God have accomplished any of these things? Of course he could. He's already accomplished so much in the life of David. But still, the Lord brings the places in our lives to come in the right season. He's always wise and he's always good and his timing is perfect. And he's like a father that has a gentle hand on his child, calling him back and teaching him sincere lessons, even pointing to the bruise on the knee and saying, don't you think you could learn a thing or two from this or that? And so there is David teaching us at least in some portion, the character of God whenever our character fails. The eternal promises of God that ought to be held on to and ought to be things through which we look for coming providence with assurance. And so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, as though you may never run from an enraged Israelite king, nonetheless, you and I have every reason to believe that we'll fall into stupid mistakes just like David did. And in all those situations, we can look to the Lord for help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, for how you never change, that you are always constant and all of your good for your people. Lord, I thank you that as David's God, you cared for him. The Lord, you sustained him in plain and ordinary ways. That, Lord, you work uh, through creation and providence, O Lord. You also work supernaturally, but that is the exception Lord, sometimes you just give us cage. You give us places to hide, security and quiet places. Lord, help us to rely on you to be a people who wouldn't lean on our understanding, who wouldn't seek uh, the benefit that we could have from other men or from our own actions. Lord, we plead with you to help us to be a strong people, a people with faith that is informed specifically by your eternal character. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.